Hi, Sarah. Hi, Josh. Welcome to Descent's Belabored Podcast, episode 13. 13 weeks, guys. That's pretty impressive. A baker's dozen of episodes, <laughs> all available online at Descent's website or on iTunes. Yes. Long time, 13-week listeners will know we always begin with a quick roundup of some of the week's news in labor. Over the past week, we've seen a couple interesting elections in locals of the American Federation of Teachers, one of the country's two big national teachers unions. I reported for the nation on an election within the Newark Teachers Union, a story I've been covering for a while previously in these times where we've seen real tension over what that union's relationship should be to the national mainstream education reform agenda, and particularly to a $100 million donation from Mark Zuckerberg, who you may know as the Facebook guy. We saw last year a contract negotiated with a compromise that was touted by Chris Christie, by Randy Weingarten, the national president of the AFT, by the local teachers union leadership, in which management agreed to what they're calling peer review, a role for workers in evaluating each other, and the union agreed to what it insists is not merit pay, what it's calling performance pay, but which involves part of teachers' compensation being paid based on evaluations, which by law will include test scores. The critics of this approach have insisted that this is merit pay, that this is a capitulation to the kind of education reform agenda that teachers pushed back against in Chicago, and teachers who call themselves the Newark Education Workers Caucus successfully took a majority of the seats on the executive board in the Newark Union in a recent election. They also came within nine votes of taking away the presidency from the person who had negotiated this deal to use this Mark Zuckerberg cash to implement this new kind of compensation system. This was followed by an election in Washington, D.C., home of famous firebrand Michelle Rhee, where challengers from the left were successful in taking the presidency and the vice presidency away from the incumbents. Rania Kalek, a friend of the podcast, had interviewed the woman who will now again be vice president of the union, who called out the leaders that have now been ousted for not taking a more aggressive role in fighting school closures. She also is someone who has been blogging against Michelle Rhee for a long time, who says that she was ousted for her activism, for taking a more confrontational approach than the then leaders took. Sarah has written recently about the election effort in the New York local of the AFT, where the reformers from the left came up short in their attempt to take control, Chicago-style, of the largest local within the American Federation of Teachers. But these caucuses challenging leaders within AFT locals from the left are talking to each other and have told us in interviews that they see this fight going on for a very long time. So... Like Josh said, we're seeing a moment in the battle over education reform, not just within the teachers' unions, but all over the country. We're seeing an increase in movements led by students and parents to opt out of standardized testing. Um, We've seen increasingly militant tactics in places like Chicago with occupations and mass rallies, uh, um, direct actions to try to keep schools open. I am 
not an expert, but I would say that it looks like we're seeing a turning point in this movement. As Josh said, I've written before about the um, election within the UFT, which the reformers did not win. And what actually happened to the UFT shortly after that election, the teachers within the UFT now are going to be subject to a new regime of teacher evaluations that were implemented by the state after years of negotiating between Michael Bloomberg and the UFT did not work. The UFT has been working in New York without a contract for over four years now. Bloomberg is notoriously um, unwilling to compromise with any of the city unions. Um, But so this new teacher evaluations scheme involves tests for things like gym, music, and art. Um, It's going to require 20% of the teacher's rating to come from state tests. 20% of the teacher's rating will come from locally determined evaluations, which are, as teacher Brian Jones pointed out to me, probably going to be more tests. And then the other 60% comes from in-class evaluations. However, if you come up as quote-unquote ineffective, On the tests, you are rated ineffective overall, and teachers who get rated ineffective two years in a row can be fired. Um, So this is, a lot of the teachers are saying, this is a, you know, backdoor way to eliminate tenure, which has been one of the goals of the Michelle re-education deform, as they like to say, movement all along. And so this contract was, like I said, it was imposed by the state in mediation because Bloomberg wouldn't cut a deal with the teachers. The UFT is stressing that this deal can be renegotiated with a new mayor who will be in place in seven months. They are hoping, as I may have noted on this podcast before, that that new mayor will be Bill Thompson, who has also been cozying up to Democrats for education reform. So it's an open question whether a new mayor will automatically be willing to walk back these reforms that that Brian Jones called the largest change to our working conditions in a decade. This week brought the announcement of a settlement between Unite Here, the union I used to work for, which represents hotel workers, and Hyatt, the global hotel corporation. We've talked a few times on this podcast about the fight between Unite Here and Hyatt, a company that is alleged to be quite aggressive in its attempt to deny workers the chance to organize and bring union recognition from their boss. We've interviewed on this podcast... Kathy Youngblood, a housekeeper who has been campaigning for a seat on Hyatt's board. So far, she has not gotten that seat. And so the announcement of this settlement is a big deal. And we should be clear that the devil is always in the details with these deals. We don't know exactly what was agreed to, but was made public was that pending ratification by members of union contracts in hotels in big cities where workers already have a union, the deal would go into effect and would include a, what both sides are calling a fair process for workers in some predetermined number of cities to choose union recognition, to choose collective bargaining. And Harold Meyerson reported at the American Prospect, a conversation he had with an unnamed official at the union who compared this deal to a prior deal for one hotel in which there was a form of neutrality agreement, which is a case in which management basically lays down arms and agrees under 
a particular set of conditions not to campaign against the union, not to take advantage of the legal and illegal opportunities for union busting that companies can often get away with in the United States. So while we don't know the details, having worked at Unite here, I would be surprised if the union agreed to this settlement without having wrung some major concessions from the company. It's an interesting campaign because it involved a wide range of what are now often called comprehensive campaign tactics. So you had air war aspects like this campaign calling for a worker to be added to Hyatt's board, a campaign to ruin part of the Pritzker family's business, the Pritzker family, including Penny Pritzker, who's now going to be our commerce secretary, used to own a company that did pre-employment credit checks, so letting companies deny people the chance to work there because they didn't have great credit. Unite here, along with a global consumer boycott, nearly global, union hotels were exempted, and a range of other such air war tactics, though, also had activism by non-union Hyatt workers and by union Hyatt members, including coordinated brief strikes by workers who had a union at Hyatt hotels. So we will see if more details emerge about exactly what was won, but the end of this multi-year campaign is significant, and it's a model that may have implications elsewhere as just as we discussed with Rich Yesselson last week, the effectiveness of these comprehensive campaigns, what it is that distinguishes the ones that win from the ones that don't, what the payoff can be, are all topics that are up for debate. From workers who have jobs to workers who don't have jobs, um, North Carolina is slashing benefits for 71,000 long-term unemployed this week. They are losing eligibility for a federal program that supplements state unemployment benefits because the state passed a law that will reduce both the amount of benefits workers receive and the number of weeks that a person can receive them for. So North Carolina used to actually have one of the most generous unemployment benefits um, payouts in the country. They had a maximum of $535 a week. It's now down to $350 a week. Um, And as of July 1st, the unemployed can only get benefits for 19 weeks, which is not only for getting any 99-week extensions, this is not even the the 26 weeks that are standard across the rest of the country. They will not get the federal extension that other states get either. So Ned Resnikoff, friend of the podcast at MSNBC, reported that the reason that the state government wants to cut these benefits is that they are paying back a loan from the federal government that allowed them to sustain their unemployment benefits earlier so that they can lower taxes on private businesses. And so North Carolina has been the site of a growing wave of protest fighting these cuts and many, many other cuts by their all-Republican state government. There have been called Moral Mondays, and the protests have been led by the state NAACP, but are a multiracial, multi-issue coalition that has been doing civil disobedience every Monday. This week, they are focusing on an anti-abortion bill, similar to the one that maybe you have heard about that was um, the focus of a lot of action in Texas last week um, that would force all abortion clinics except one in the state to close. And, of course, they're also trying to pass, once again, voting restrictions that now the Supreme Court has paved the way for. So all of these things together, the sort of cruelty of the cuts to unemployment benefits 
It's another example of what I called, I wrote about this for Truth Out this week, talking about the politics of sadism, the way that policies that attack the poor are told, or, you know, politicians like Rick Perry and Paul Ryan like to tell us that they're for our own good. And if we just cut people's unemployment benefits, they'll go find jobs because those jobs really exist. And all of this is really sold to us as it is for their own good. Meanwhile, these attacks are paired with attacks on women's reproductive freedoms, access to health care, and, of course, the voting rights attacks, which are an attempt to take away what little political power low-income and working-class people actually have. We are delighted to be joined now by Michelle Chen, an outstanding journalist covering labor. She's a contributing editor at In These Times. She blogs regularly for In These Times. She's an editor at Culture Strike. She co-produces the Asia-Pacific Forum on Pacifica's WBAI radio. And you can follow her on Twitter at, not the actual spelling of her name, at M-E-E-S-H-E-L-L-C-H-E-N. Thanks for being with us. I got bills galore, I need my bread up. Am I the only person in this room that's fed up? No. Obama, man, I'm trying to get paid, but can we please get a raise on minimum wage? Last week, the Supreme Court made it harder for workers to challenge harassment in the workplace and narrowing their definition of who is a supervisor and ignoring the fact that for many workers, a hostile work environment is created not just by the ultimate boss, but as the Paula Dean case that uh, shook up the internet recently, but by, as you wrote, middle managers and even sometimes colleagues. Can you talk some about the implications of this decision for individual workers considering lawsuits or other legal forms of uh, fighting, and also for people work organizing in the workplace? Yeah. Um, well, the Supreme Court basically handed down a very 5-4 ruling. I kind of flew under the radar because of all the other huge decisions that came down around the same time on um, marriage equality, etc. But um, it essentially limits uh, an interpretation of um, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which is supposed to combat discrimination in the workplace. And the original spirit of the law was to make employers more accountable for discrimination in the workplace. And as we all know, discrimination can take many forms. It can come from various different people. It can come from people who are technically sharing your job title. It can come from middle management. and can come from the upper echelons of uh, the corporate administration. So um, what the Supreme Court essentially did was they took an extremely narrow interpretation of the term supervisor, um, which was to say basically that a supervisor is only someone working at that entity that has the power to hire, fire, um, you know, discipline, etc. So someone who definitely has that kind of top-down authority to really affect your job status or your employment status. So the case involving a, a woman named Maya Vance and Ball State University involved a black woman who's a catering worker, and her complaint was that this white coworker in a higher position than she was um, bullied her in the workplace, subjected her to mistreatment, and that it was a, it created an overall hostile workplace environment that was uh, you know racist and abusive, and so she tried to sue her employer. Um, so you know a reasonable person would look at Title VII and say, yeah, your employer should be held accountable. Ball State University should be held accountable if they're allowing this to happen in their workplace. But uh, the Supreme Court uh, decided that because the person at the center of the accusations was not technically a supervisor, meaning with the power to hire or fire, Ms. Vance was not entitled uh, to that um, right of action under Title VII. So what this basically means is that employers are kind of 
not responsible for the abuses that might take place between a direct supervisor who is, you know, one step below the top, top management and a lower level worker. So this kind of, you know, slices and dices the legal language of Title VII and makes it much harder to combat discrimination on a systemic level in the workplace. Because if you can't hold your employer accountable for the abusive actions of a person who happens to be middle management, then you're essentially really limiting the scope of the law. Um, so there is a way that Ms. Vance could actually sue, you know, sue her employer for negligence for creating a bad workplace environment. But that's not really the same as holding that employer directly accountable in court. So this is also paired with another Title VII decision uh, that came down from the Supreme Court, which um, also limited discrimination claims. Uh, It essentially made it harder to prove that an employer's action was retaliatory. It raised the bar of proof on the level of discrimination involved a person um, who had been denied a job after leaving his employment at a medical center because he um, allegedly um, was discriminated against. So anyway, these two decisions taken together really limit the scope of Title VII. And the problem now is that we're left with a civil rights law that's essentially been gutted um, because the point of the Civil Rights Act is not to distinguish between who is a supervisor and who is a boss and who is a lower level worker in the workplace, right? I mean, the point is that we do not want workplaces that treat people badly because of their race or gender. So yeah, in a nutshell, the Civil Rights Act just got a lot harder to enforce against your boss. So switching topics, you've written, in fact, recently about um, home care workers and domestic workers and the particular difficulties that workers who labor in private homes face in getting any kind of workplace justice, particularly when many of those domestic workers are immigrants who already have very little access to the legal system. What are some of the things from your recent reporting that are actually being done or could be done for these workers? And Connecting it to immigration reform, are we likely to see any protection for domestic workers out of immigration reform? Yeah, well, the issue of domestic workers kind of highlights um, some of the kind of baked in inequities in the immigration reform bill, the way it's been shaping up, because um, much of the immigration reform debate going on in Congress right now is really about employment-based immigration. So it's about inviting uh, prized workers and or agricultural workers, people who are special categories of workers, such as tech workers who are seen as, you know, inherently more valuable to the economy. Obviously, that's going to reflect a bias, uh, certainly a socioeconomic bias, but also gender bias in the way we value different forms of work. So domestic workers, um, there's nary a peep about them specifically in the immigration reform bill because they are not seen as the kind of, you know, high skill workers that uh, are really needed for the U.S. economy, even though uh, the demand for home health care, the demand for domestic work is soaring, and in part, um, a lot of the workplace advancements of many middle-class white women in this country has kind of been subsidized by the low-wage work of um, women who are taking care of their kids in their homes. And, you know, that is the system that we're working within, and this is, you know, not to pit different classes of workers against each other, but if a law is going to distinguish between different groups of workers and different sectors of work that way, then we need to think about who is most affected by this so-called reform. So in short, immigration reform does not say very much about domestic workers, but um, domestic workers have been able to make a lot of strides just organizing 
as a labor movement. So even though it is obviously very difficult to unionize, they're not covered by many of the key provisions of the Fair Labor Standards Act or um, any of these other laws. They do not have the same access to the NLRB process. They can still organize um, through grassroots action, and that's what the Domestic Workers Alliance and Domestic Workers United here in New York have been doing. Uh, And they've actually made great strides, primarily by appealing directly to the public. Um, And it's actually, you know, a pretty good sell because so many people and so many people, you know, who uh, are are quite influential have, you know, a nanny in their lives or a a caregiver for an elderly relative and their lives are deeply and intimately affected by the kind of work that they do. The object now is to get these people to actually value that labor as work, right? And of course, you've written a lot about work in the care industries, right? And how that's not adequately valued um, for all sorts of reasons. But, you know, the fact that women are doing it is one major reason. Um, So, so it is um, a pretty impressive testament to the power of organizing because you see women, almost universally women of color and uh, immigrant women who are actually mobilizing and they're reaching out to constituencies that, uh, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be the most keyed into immigration rights issues or even gender rights issues. And, you know, some of the campaigns that have been rolled out by the Domestic Workers Alliance have used, you know, Um, women celebrities and things like that. So they have um, done a pretty effective job of getting the message out there to women who, you know, might have seen feminism as something that's much more about climbing the corporate ladder or career advancement and not necessarily about the woman who is um, taking care of their three-year-old at home and doing a lot of the really sort of thankless frontline work that makes all other work for women, you know, flourish. So... You've also written in the immigration debate about recruitment abuse under the current immigration system, and you argued in your writing about this in these times that legalization is a very limited lens through which to understand the challenges facing immigrant workers, the on-the-ground reality in front of them. How so? Well, sort of the fetishization of making immigrants legal um, has really dominated the debate. The two sort of planks of immigration reform now are one so-called legalizing um, undocumented workers. Um, So there are, you know, somewhere around 11 million undocumented people residing in this country, many of them working sort of quote, in the shadows, unquote, um, working off the books, you know, in barely regulated workplace settings and in very poorly uh, regulated sectors, right? So, you know, obviously that opens up the door to abuse. Um, So their lack of legal status is definitely a, a key component of what needs to change. On the other hand, if we just stop at legalization, we're sort of ignoring all these other broader issues, you know, that the lack of legal status really highlights, which is a, you know, inherent uh, imbalance in the power dynamic in a workplace. Immigrant workers, even those who are legally here, right, on visas, um, many of them on employment-based visas, are still subject to intense discrimination and abuse. And we saw this, say, with... um, um, well, we see this agricultural workers all the time. You know, there are many undocumented agricultural workers, but there are many so-called legal agricultural workers who are also subjected to intense abuse. And it's not simply because they lack legal status. It's because their visa is tied to their employer, which makes them essentially in 
indentured servants. Similarly, uh, with um, you know, I'm sure you've talked on the show about the J1 visa workers, the young the young workers who are essentially imported on uh, supposedly educational um, uh, authorization from the State Department. So um, they spend you know very rewarding summers um, working at McDonald's and uh, doing all sorts of you know great rewarding uh, activities that will prepare them for high level careers later in life. Um, so obviously, you know, slaving away in a Hershey's warehouse in Pennsylvania is not um, a young student's idea of a fulfilling, you know, work training experience. So, I mean, that's just another example of, you know, many of the hundreds of thousands of workers who come on these visas and are subject to intense abuse. And the reason I think it's important to highlight that is because these types of employment-based visas are set to expand, right? Um, and that's kind of, um, you know, the, the carrot that's being dangled in immigration reform, uh, saying that um, we are going to allow you to stay in this country legally, but you will be working here with this um, very marginal legal status that doesn't accord you the full rights of a regular citizen, but does allow us to exploit your labor. So, I mean, it's, it's uh, a pretty raw deal. Um, and, you know, obviously the circumstances vary depending on the labor and depending on the way in which this person came into the country. But often the most vulnerable groups of immigrants, even when they do have legal status, are still uh, very, very vulnerable to workplace abuse. And um, that's probably going to expand, unfortunately, um, if immigration reform passes. <sighs> Fun. Yeah. Um, I'm just being a Debbie Downer today. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, well... Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Right? Um, so you've written a lot about workers up and down the food supply chain. Um, again, largely immigrant workers. Again, like domestic workers excluded from labor law protections. But like the domestic workers, we've, all, we've also seen, to, to get away from the Debbie Downer for a minute, we've also seen some really impressive organizing um, among farm workers, among food chain workers. Um, can you talk about some of the more innovative organizing that you've seen in that sector and stuff that you've reported on in the past? Yeah, um, well, I guess I can start with a local story. Um, there's this group called Brand Workers, which was actually kind of um, focuses on kind of a syndicalist approach to organizing, um, which is kind of plucking an old concept from labor history, uh, esoterica. But um, if you're a history nerd like me, um, you can go back, you know, generations and see a, a tradition of labor organizing that kind of goes beyond kind of a cooperative union structure, more uh, corporate hierarchical workplace structure, and actually focuses on workplace-based agitation and actual, you know, immediate gains for workers in the workplace. So obviously, um, there may be limitations to individual campaigns in terms of building a more systemic labor movement infrastructure, but if you're talking about um, workers who are working in very precarious jobs in pretty marginalized sectors, such as food service and, um, you know, food processing, uh, which is where a lot of you know, many of the labor struggles are taking place right now, warehouse workers is another one, um, then, you know, a lot of labor activists are starting to think more creatively. I mean, if, even if you look at some of the more high-profile campaigns like Walmart, right, I mean, those are trying to link workers working in different sectors, all tied to this one gigantic corporate behemoth, right, and trying to get people to 
think about workplace organizing and workers' rights in a more diverse way. So it's not just about uh, protecting people in one particular shop, right? Um, and it's not just necessarily about getting a majority vote. Um, you can affect a lot of change if you kind of untether yourself from this idea that you need to go through a certain process or certain mechanisms. So in the food industries in general, there's a lot of room for this kind of organizing because um, there's a lot of vertical integration um, in the food chain that many people sort of don't understand because the food industry is obviously structured to keep us pretty unaware of how our food is made, right? But there are groups like the Food Chain Workers Alliance that are trying to link the struggles of restaurant workers in the front line with the struggles of workers in food processing industries who are making the packaged foods that we get in grocery stores. And then it's going all the way back uh, up the agricultural chain to the people who pick our tomatoes, right? So if you take a more systemic approach, um, you know, it may be somewhat unorthodox within the labor movement, but it has a lot of currency now because we're finally catching up to what corporations have understood all along, which is that you need integration and you need to think systemically in order to control a sector. So if uh, more labor activists thought that way, then maybe we'd be able to better challenge corporate power. So speaking of food um, and agriculture, um, the recent farm bill contained a whole bunch of debate over people wanting to cut the SNAP program, what most people know of as food stamps. Um, And you wrote about this and the fight over it, noting that one of the main arguments that people make to cut these programs is that, you know, we're we're creating dependency and we're disincentivizing work. But, you know, as you pointed out, it actually subsidizes people who are doing low wage jobs for employers like Walmart. Can you give us an update on the SNAP fight, sort of what happened and where things may be now? Yeah, well, I mean, there's a perennial clash over the farm bill in Congress, and um, there was the the House version of the bill that was uh, recently um, blocked in Congress, and many people are actually thankful for that, would have uh, enacted extremely severe cuts to the food stamps program, um, and it would have done so through pretty insidious provisions that would have really found sort of legal quirks that would have eroded people's access to benefits. So it was not so much an outright cut. And that's the thing with a lot of these so-called entitlement programs, I don't really like to use that term, but um, the idea behind food stamps is that they naturally expand based on the needs of of people, right? If people are hungry, um, food stamps need to expand, but they would have inserted all of these nefarious little rules in the food stamp application system, which would have made it harder for people to qualify for benefits. So that, thankfully, has been held up. But the broader problem, of course, is the farm bill, which is why there's always this impasse in Congress, is because it really reflects these um, sort of awful skewed priorities in our food policy. The farm bill itself is this weird hybrid between so-called urban interests, which are, you know, subsidizing food for city dwellers, um, people who work, right, and can't grow their own food, and the agribusiness, basically, right? So even though food stamps are good and essential for people to get by on a day-to-day basis, the fact that they are tied to a bill that subsidizes the agricultural industry in um, a very inequitable way um, essentially locks people, including many, many poor people, into a a very imbalanced food system, and and that um, really does nothing to even remotely broach some of the long-term issues we're facing with creating a more nutritious food supply in this country, making it more possible for agricultural workers to earn a living wage. Um, So, you know, yes, we should support efforts to defend food stamps in the immediate term, but um, that shouldn't detract from this uh, broader monstrosity that is the farm bill that we need to really get our priorities straight on. 
Moving abroad, you reported recently at In These Times on an illegal strike by guest workers in Dubai, one of whom said if workers got some kind of legal recognition, their bosses could just have union representatives deported. You've also reported on labor activism in China and in Bangladesh, where the government is either explicitly or alleged to be implicitly siding with management. Do you see any common themes between these struggles, and in particular, what kind of leverage are workers turning to? What does it suggest about the relationship between going on strike against your boss and what in the U.S. is banned as a political strike, where you're going on strike against the government? And are there lessons here for workers in the U.S.? Yeah, well, um, the Dubai strike is interesting because in many cases, the boss and the government are pretty much one and the same. Um, So in these Gulf states, I mean, it's shocking to look at the statistics of who constitutes their workforce, right? It's difficult to find, uh, you know, a worker doing, you know, manual labor or doing construction or doing anything that doesn't require a college degree in a place like Dubai, who is not imported from some uh, faraway country, right? And they come technically on, on a legal basis as guest workers, but obviously... You know, as with the U.S., they are um, in a very precarious position. Human Rights Watch has spoken out against the horrible violence, um, and much of it is sexual violence perpetrated against female domestic workers. Um, most of these workers come from places like um, Nepal and Bangladesh, um, and they are pretty desperate, and they um, are basically at the very bottom rungs of this huge wealth divide in these countries. And the economies are structured very differently from the United States, right? And in many cases, the situation is more dire in terms of the immediate human rights effects for these workers. But it does offer some interesting lessons in terms of when strikes are essentially illegal across the board, what recourse do workers have? And if they can simply be booted out of the country, as they uh, were threatened with in Dubai, then that raises some serious questions about um, who is holding employers accountable, right? And uh, in, in a place like the United Arab Emirates, there really is almost complete impunity for these corporations. And if perhaps lessons for the U.S. is, I mean, if we are having more guest workers, I know that that many people in Congress would sort of um, chafe at the the term guest workers, but they are essentially guest workers, then what does that mean when you can simply cut off their legal right to be in this country if they go against their employer? Um, And that is a very serious ethical question when we have an employment system and an immigration system that is essentially serving the interests of corporations. And, uh, you know, the same thing goes for uh, organizing in Bangladesh, which is in the case of, you know, the Walmart factories in Bangladesh. These are these are Bangladeshi workers, right? They're not guest workers, but they are, um, in a sense, migrants from rural areas in many cases. Many of them are young women and they're living extremely precarious lives. And um, in in this case, it's almost sort of uh, the reverse in the sense that Walmart is a foreign entity, right? And they're coming into this country and exploiting the local workers. But it's the same issue of corporations being able to exploit this legal sort of gray area, right? Where, you know, they're not accountable to um, the labor regulatory authorities in Bangladesh, such as they exist, and they are, you know, obviously labor enforcement has serious issues there. And, um, you know, similarly in the U.S., you know, it's very difficult to mobilize consumers to care about workers that they never see here or have any contact with. And so um, those workers are extremely disempowered. Um, So it's this sort of 
global arbitrage in um, you know the lack of a universal um, set of workplace standards and rights that should really apply to workers wherever they are. Thanks again to Michelle Chen, and please check out her work online. This brings us to the point in our podcast where we say, "Arg! I wish I had written that. Sir, if you were trying to barbecue on the 4th of July, but you had no fire to barbecue with, the, the only flame you had was the burning flame of resentment and envy that someone else had written an article this week, what would that article be? I think that's my favorite one of these so far. Um, so this week I am deathly jealous of, well, I'm usually jealous of the reporters at ProPublica because they are one of the very few outlets that really support long-form investigative journalism. This week there is um, an article in their, what is now an ongoing series on temp labor. Um, this piece is called The Expendables, How the Temps Who Power Corporate Giants Are Getting Crushed. It's by um, Michael Grabel. I'm sorry, Michael, if I mispronounced your last name. Um and this piece takes us inside a temp agency where workers, um, many of them immigrant workers, sit for hours unpaid waiting to see if there's going to be work that day. Um, it's a modern version of, you know, if you've seen one of my favorite, even though it's got sort of terrible politics, films uh, on the waterfront, you see the sort of the shape up where workers stand up and, and are called on to whether they're going to get work that day or not. The piece also looks at broader trends in using temp labor in manufacturing, in the sort of blue collar work that used to be union work. Um talks to a couple of experts, including Aaron Hatton, who has written a wonderful book that I have read called The Temp Economy, which really looks at the way um, temp jobs were originally sold because of gender. They were sold as good part-time jobs for women to work, and then slowly but surely took over the rest of the economy, and now have taken up doing things like selling themselves as union busters. The piece is really long, it's really in-depth, it's really beautifully written, as well as really extensively reported, and it's really great, and I'm really happy to see that somebody is going to be doing some extensive reporting on this issue, because when I read Aaron Hatton's book, I was really just horrified to find out exactly how much um, temp labor was in our economy. So, Continuing the theme that friend of the podcast Ned Reznikoff calls hashtag everything is horrifying, I am jealous this week of Mark Lifscher of the Los Angeles Times, who had a great article called Many Low-Wage Workers Who Won Judgments Were Never Paid. That title gives you some sense of the article. It relies on a number of interviews with California workers, as well as a new report by the National Employment Law Project and the UCLA Labor Center. The report is titled Hollow Victories, the Crisis in Collecting Unpaid Wages for California Workers. Perhaps the most shocking statistic is that from 2008 to 2011, in the words of the article, only 17% of court-ordered claims for back pay and labor law penalties were collected. So, in other words, this returns to a question we've often discussed on this podcast, which is, even when our relatively bad labor and employment laws are made better... How much does that change lead to change in the lives of workers? And how much leverage does the law itself give workers, even when on paper it's on their side, in the absence of 
worker organizations, of working class organizations that are able to actually enforce the law and overcome the very real threat of retaliation, as well as the ample number of legal maneuvers that companies can use to dodge what should be legally owed to workers. We've talked at length about wage theft on this podcast. This article also notes, as the report did, the number of ways in which companies can shapeshift and legally cease to exist while popping up with many of the same people doing the same business, sometimes with the same people, and yet avoid the legal culpability that they otherwise would have had for quite simply not paying people the wages, not just that they may have been morally owed, but the wages that they legally were required to pay them. So it's also a must-read. Speaking of must-reads, Descent Magazine's summer issue came out this week. It includes our interview from the very first ever belabored podcast with Karen Lewis. Please check it out, as well as an outstanding book section, a number of provocative and bracing articles. Again, Descent makes belabored possible. We're very grateful to them, and particularly to our producer, Natasha Lewis. Once again, thank you to everyone who sticks around and listens, and thank you to our new listeners, too. Um, we hope maybe you'll go back and check out some of the earlier issues episodes. Josh, will we be back next week? We shall, we shall. In the meantime, please tweet at Descent Magazine. Use the hashtag belabored. Let us know topics you'd like us to use for explainers. Let us know stories you'd like us to cover. Let us know how you're enjoying Belabored Podcast and what you've seen happening out in the world of labor, a world that touches basically everything. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hate to end if we can't go. society has enslaved me and it's crazy because daily it gets hard.